was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to present the second part of my celebration of the 50th anniversary of Grease with its producer, Ken Waisman. In addition to Grease, Ken Waisman's other Broadway producing credits include Over Here, Torch Song Trilogy, Agnes of God, The Octet Bridge Club, Street Corner Symphony, and And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little. He was also half of Waisman and Buckley Associates, a general management company responsible for Carrie, Asinamali, and other shows. His off-Broadway producing credits include Today I Am a Fountain Pen and Fortune and Men's Eyes, directed by Sal Minio. Ken is also the co-author with Tom Moore and Adrian Barbeau of the recently released Grease Tell Me More, Tell Me More, Stories from the Broadway Phenomenon That Started It All, available from Chicago Review Press anywhere books are sold. So pause, go buy that book, and now, without further ado, Ken Weissman. <laughs> so I would love to begin by asking you, how did your interest in theater first begin? Oh my God. <clears throat> well, when I was seven years old, my parents brought me to New York. Um, uh, my dad was in the uh, jewelry business and it was the jewelry show in August of 1947. And uh, we saw three shows in three nights. The first show was Finian's Rainbow, the original production with Ella Logan. The second show was uh, Born Yesterday with Judy Holliday. And the third show was the um, um, original production of Oklahoma. Oh, well, that's quite an introduction. <laughs> but it was the first show, Finian's Rainbow, that just, you know, just took me over. Uh, watching all these people on stage, uh, these grown-up actors, this is what they did when they went to work. And that just, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't figure it. And my dad, because I, I mentioned he was in business, uh, at the age of seven, um, I was, you know, every question was, who's the boss of this and who's the boss of that? So, um, Going up the aisle after Finian's Rainbow, I said to my dad, who's the boss of this? And he said, the producer. And right then and there, I made up my mind that when I grew up, I was going to move to New York and be a Broadway producer. Wow. And from that moment on, that's all really that I thought about. By the time I was 11, I got my dad to help me build a whole theater in my basement. We had seating for 50. And for the next four years, I put on shows every summer using the kids in the neighborhood my dad would bring me the um, cast albums uh, or the screen albums of the musicals I was doing and so I could use my um, half inch in those days tape recorder to splice the songs in and splice the music in for the, and have the kids lip sync you know because they were just 10 11 12 year old kids on the neighborhood and um, I had my mother call around to find out which charity would put us uh, give us a newspaper article in the Baltimore Sun Every, that was my hometown every summer and the Maryland Cancer Fund said they would do that. So they got all the proceeds from their shows and they gave us a write up every year. 
And then um, we, we got to present the check to them on television every year. So that's where I learned producing, actually, because I had to I had to fire people. I had to choose <laughs> what was going to happen. I had to, um, uh, you know, go around and sell tickets and raise the money. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I gave that, I told that story once at Pace University, where I, before the pandemic, I used to speak twice a year to their theater department. And um, uh, the professor afterwards, it came up because somebody asked a question. So I started telling the story about how I had to fire an actor and her mother went crazy and called my mother and said, you got to hire her back. She didn't show up at rehearsal. That's why she got fired. And her mother uh, said to my mother, he's got to hire her back. All the kids on the block are in that show. And my mother said, I'm sorry, but it's not my show. <laughs> <laughs> so the professor said, from now on, you've got to tell that because in that short 15 minutes, you gave every one of those kids an idea in terms that they could understand of exactly what producing is. <laughs> And has that I have to, has that ever come up, or has it come up since that you've had to fire someone professionally? And, and have oh you well, of course. Uh, well, back then, you know, I had to fire two people. One because um, she kept we were doing my first show was Cinderella, and um, she was playing the fairy godmother, one of the girls on my block, and um, she kept poking Cinderella with a wand. And <laughs> do that one more time, and you're fired, and I'll never let you in another show. She was okay for a little bit, and then she started doing that again with the wrong you know, So I said, you're fired. And I said, you can never be in another show. And I felt really bad about the never be in another show part. And so I ended up letting her, I wouldn't let her back in the show because I had said no, but I did let her uh, work the spotlight. So for the, for the remaining three years, that summers that we did this, she worked the spotlight and she changed the gels and all of that. So at least she was involved. Yeah. And then, of course, in in adult life, actually producing, um, yeah, we've had, you know, I've had experiences where it just wasn't working, and we had to replace an actor. Uh, that happened on Agnes of God. We were in Boston, and Lee Remick was our first choice, and uh, it just it wasn't happening. And Geraldine Page and Amanda Plummer's performances were not growing. You're out of town to watch the performances grow and watch the actors lay layers, and it wasn't happening. And um, so I said to Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director, I said, um, you know, we can't go to New York like this because uh, it's not a three-way tour de force like it needs to be. This play it was a three-character play. He said, well, I'm the director. You know, it's my job to get it out of her. And, um, I, you know, it's funny how fate plays a role in shows. Some shows are blessed and they come through the crises somehow that they, every show has and they open and they're successful. Some shows, you know, are, are, are damned <laughs> all along. And I had one of those too, where nothing worked and everything that you hoped would never happen did happen. Uh, I, I don't know what causes that karma, but uh, on this show, um, we had some blessings though, because it was two o'clock in the morning. We were going into, we were in our second week in Boston. We only had one more left. And um, I had, a friend of mine who was in the diplom Australian diplomat wouldn't be able to come to the opening because he was going to the Middle East. And he asked me if he could come up to Boston and see the show before he left to go overseas. And I said, well, you can, but, uh, you know, don't, we're having a lot of problems with Lee Remick. She just doesn't seem to get it. Uh, so we had dinner after and 
in that Australian accent, he said, she's bloody awful, like a walking tree. <laughs> so now it's two o'clock in the morning, I'm in my hotel suite, and I'm thinking, gotta do something about this. So I called my press agent, Betty Lee Hunt, because the first name that came to my mind, who had the movie star image like Lee Remick, who was very beautiful like Lee Remick and was in the right age bracket like Lee Remick, was Liz Ashley, Elizabeth Ashley. And so I called my press agent, Betty Lee Hunt, who knew where everybody always was. And she, I said, where's Elizabeth Ashley? And I explained. And she said, uh, well, she just got back from shooting a movie with Peter O'Toole. Uh, let me call her. I said, it's 2.15 in the morning. She said, she's up. So she <laughs> called me back a little while later and she said, okay, I'm getting her a script tomorrow. Uh, she's going to read it. And I told her that if she is interested, that you would come down and have lunch with her on uh, Wednesday. And then um, she'd have to come up to Boston uh, on Friday, see the show, and start working with Michael Lindsay Hawk, the director, on Saturday. And um, the next morning, Betty Lee called me and said, uh, Liz wants to do it. She said, what, what a joy to read a script that you don't feel like you have to kick uphill. That was her quote. And uh, so I gathered Michael, Lindsay Hogg, and um, John P. Meyer, the playwright, uh, together in an early breakfast. And I, and I said, Michael, we just have to do this. We cannot go to New York with this threesome. We'll close. Uh, I said, and I know you feel it's your responsibility to get it out of her, and I understand that. But Michael, you always told me how your mother, his mother, by the way, was Geraldine Fitzgerald, the actress with Betty Davis. And he said, you always told me that your mother took you to um, the races in June in, um, in uh, London um, every summer, the thing where the Queen came and everything, those famous races. And you told me how fascinated you were watching the horses, watching the jockeys. So, Michael, you know that no matter how good the jockey is, if the horse has a broken leg, you got to shoot it. And... Um, he said, but I've never worked with Liz Ashley. Suppose she doesn't want to work with me. And I said, um, we're in the trenches. You know, we've got one week left um, in Boston, and then we're in New York. I said, there's no such thing as not getting along. So then I flew down and had lunch with Liz. She asked the same question. I've never worked with Michael Lindsay Hall. She said, what if he doesn't want to work with me? And again, I said, we're in the trenches, blah, blah, blah. And uh, she, we ended the lunch. She said, okay, I'll, I'll go tell my agent. And you have your general manager call them. We'll have a deal by six o'clock. And at a quarter of six, my general manager called and said, um, we've got the deal. And um, at six on the dot, uh, Liz Ashley called and she said, I told you we'd have a deal by six o'clock. I will be there on Friday. And she said, and don't worry, because Lee Remick, well, you know, we, we would probably have told her just about then or the next day. She said, um, so don't worry, nobody will recognize me. I said, what are you going to do, wear sunglasses? She said, no. She, and, and when she arrived on Friday uh, with no makeup and a scarf and everything, nobody recognized her. But uh, then we had the, uh, which is another story, we had, then we had to sit, leave down and explain why, you know, we were making a change. Um, I must say that although she was a little defensive that night that we did it, and also, she was supposed to have dinner with Barishnikov, who came to see the show. But they just had a cocktail because she felt something important was going on. And she came to the, my suite much earlier than uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg and I expected. Uh, but, and, and then, of course, 
we said that what we would say is that she had no legal obligation to come to New York and she got a movie. Uh, but she, in a panic, she called uh, the theater the next day, had them take everything out of her dressing room up to her family compound in the Cape. And um, uh, her agent, uh, well, the head of her agency was the legendary Milton Goldman at ICM. And the next morning, um, I must have had like 10 calls from him because I told him I don't want any calls until noon. We were up so late. And they were like, they, they, when I pressed the button for messages, they said, you've got 10 calls from this man named Milton Goldman? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. I didn't have to call him back because the phone rang right away. And he said, you're not firing Lee Remick. He said, um, we're not going to let you settle anything. We're not going to let you fire her. I said, Milton, I said, if you're trying to close my show, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to call a press conference, but it's going to take place in the lobby of ICM. And I'm going to tell them that if they corner you, you will tell them exactly why, what was going on backstage, all these things that were happening in which we had to replace her. He said, that you're going to make up all... I said, no, not me. Everybody knows you have loose lips. You have no control over what you say. That's your reputation. They'll get that out of you. We settled right away. <laughs> and she came to see the show. I got um, this note from her about two months into the run when we were already hit. She's, she, I was in New York and I snuck in to see the show. And I must say, I was wrong for it. I can see it now, and Elizabeth Ashley is just wonderful. So she had a lot of class. Yeah. You know, that was the only major star that I've had to fire. <laughs> and then, so I'd love to go back for a little bit to ask you, how did you first get your sort of training at college or whatever that was for you? And when I went to college? Yeah, or interning or anything like that. Yeah, I did, yeah. Well, um, in high school, you know, I was involved in, um, but I acted in some of the plays. And uh, then in college, I put together a whole variety show, uh, which we did on campus. Um, and then I, I sent a note to the Army Professional Entertainment Bureau in Washington. And they ended up sending us out on a summer tour throughout, throughout all the bases in the Caribbean, which was an exciting, you know, experience for us. We went to Panama, we went to Guantanamo, um, and, and other islands, you know, where there were American bases. And we performed our show, which was called Footlight Fever. And um, it's interesting, when we got to Puerto Rico, we discovered before the performance that someone had stolen all of the, um, the girls' shoes. <laughs> why, they, why they went on high heels, I don't know, but they were all <laughs> stolen. But somebody immediately got a plane from Miami to bring down replacement shoes, just like that. So we went on with shoes after all, but we were going to call it barefoot fever. <laughs> and then um, after I went, first I went to the University of Maryland and that's where I did that, that show. And uh, then, I, um, uh, then I went to graduate school at NYU School of the Arts uh, um, in television, radio and theater. And um, while I was there, when I was getting ready to uh, graduate, um, Sergeant Shriver, who was then running the Peace Corps, that was uh, John Kennedy's brother-in-law, uh, he was head of the Peace Corps, he came and gave, gave a talk about the Peace Corps. And he mentioned this special project that they were doing in Bogota, Colombia, 
in which they were doing educational television broadcasts uh, throughout the country for children, young people. And that really appealed to me for some reason. First of all, the idea of being in a foreign country, of producing shows and directing them right out of graduate school in another language um, appealed to me. But I think the thing that put the, put, put the nail in it that I really wanted to go was the fact that it was during the Vietnam War. And in Baltimore, where I was from, um, I had a very democratic draft board and they weren't drafting anybody who was in the Peace Corps. So that, I think, was the ultimate, you know, but, uh, but it was tremendously exciting. And um, we, we, we were broadcasting to, I did a music show, which I put together. It was almost like a forerunner of Sesame Street because the hostess um, was this Shirley Temple-ish, like grown up, you know, Shirley Temple, um, like woman who was a musicologist. She had studied with Carl Orphan in States and Europe. Um, and we had two puppets on the show. One was a cow who got everything right, and one was a puppet who got everything wrong. And um, uh, and, and the fan mail that would come from all over the country for these puppets, you know. We, uh, and then I found out that uh, the Peace Corps was having Stanford University come down and sort of evaluate, uh, like in the Nielsen ratings, you know, who was watching and all of that. So the minute I heard that, I went to um, uh, the Peace Corps offices, and I uh, and I went to the um, national television, the head of the national television, and I said, uh, you know, I want to take this whole show out on the road, and every month, you know, we went somewhere in the country where we performed in these um, open amphitheaters that were sort of like converted movie houses or whatever, and the and the price of admission was they had to bring one of the things that we taught them on television, like instruments or hats that we told them how to make and all of that. And after, uh, and that's also where we realized that uh, Hollywood did not invent the idea of stardom. That's just natural because the first time I introduced in Spanish, the hostess of the program, Amalia Samper, and she walked out with her T-play, which is a, a, a guitar that's actually strung like a ukulele. They started storming toward the stage once they realized she wasn't electronic, for some reason there was a silence like they thought they were going to see a black and white wavy thing come out. But when they saw this real flesh and blood, they went nuts. Fortunately, we had like, and for Colombians you don't find too many of these, but we had like six, six security guys standing down there. <laughs> they got everybody back in their seat and we made sure we had plenty of those, all the other places that we went. But uh, that first time, I was out afterwards, I was checking the station wagon to make sure all the puppets, everything was, you know, there. And this little boy is looking at me and he's holding something, maybe he's five or six. And I, I, uh, I said, what's wrong? He said, well, I want to see Pasquale. I said, well, Pasquale already took the train back. You missed him. So he started to sort of cry. And I said, well, what's wrong? And he held out this hat. We had taught them how to make it, but he had put his own thing on, like, I love you, Pasquale. And he put his town, and he put the department, which is like their state. And when we started these programs, these kids didn't know they lived in the town. They didn't know they lived in what was called a, um, a department. Um, and he put a school, of course, down there. And I said, well, if you give it to me, I said, I will make sure that Pasquale, where is it on the show? And I said, it'll take a few days to tape it. And about four days later, five days later, Pasquale arrived 
wearing the hat. And Amalia says, Pasquale, where did you get that wonderful hat? From my very dear friend, he gives the name, the town, everything, you know. About a week later, I'm at the embassy for a reception for some newly arrived Peace Corps people. And the, some Peace Corps volunteers from that town came up and they said, you have no idea what you did. They were carrying that kid around on their shoulders throughout the whole town because he was mentioned on national television. I always wonder what happened to him. He probably became head of a cartel or something. <laughs> then I came to New York. You wanted another rest. So I came to New York, and the first job I got, believe it or not, well, the first job was actually on a, um, a PBS um, interview show uh, that somebody I knew from NYU was producing. And I was sort of, uh, for this little segment of programs, I was the the interviewer, and we had all the, and it was about um, uh, accomplished or famous people from New Jersey. So we had a lot of interesting people on that. And then the next thing I got was working for, through through the personnel liaison in the Peace Corps. Um, she introduced me to the personnel person at CBS, and I wound up working on one of the Secret of Storm. But the meantime, all of this time, I was trying to get a job on Broadway, of course, and then finally. Um, I sent, I realized that George Abbott, the veteran producer director, you know, John McGain, Dan Yankee, I mean, you name it. By the time I worked for him, he had done 110 shows, either as producer and writer, writer, director. And um, I saw he was doing a new show, so I, I wrote a note. I didn't get an answer. So then I took my resume and I took a pinking shears and I cut it, not totally down the middle. I wanted whoever was looking at it to see what was on it. But I put it in an envelope and I put a note on there that said, if you want to see the other half of me, I'm available at your convenience. <laughs> and he called me in and I got hired and I was his assistant on like three shows. And that really gave me a foundation, you know, um, because none of the shows were hits. And while that was not good for him and the people involved, it proved to be very good for me because that's how I learned. You know, had they all been hits, um, I would continue working for him. I don't know when I would have branched off and taken that leap, although of course I knew I was going to do it at some point. But, um, you know, I really learned watching what happened when a show didn't work and how they handled it. You know, so that was a great education. And uh, after that, um, I met um, Maxine Fox, who um, was from Baltimore, from my hometown. We went to the same high school. I didn't know her in high school. She was three years younger. But she had been Barbara Streisand's first personal assistant. And when I met her, she was the casting director for Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, the off-Broadway hit that was going, you know, gangbusters off-Broadway. And a mutual friend from Baltimore had said, have you met, you know, it was a girl Maxine, uh, who went to high school with us. I said, no. I, but when she, they told me who her parents were, because we all belonged to the same country club in Baltimore, so I knew them. I remembered them, but somehow I didn't remember her. So she arranged uh, for us to meet. And, you know, we were like two, um, two peas in a pod, you know, trying to make it. And we kind of teamed up. And um, so we did the first few shows that I did, we did, we did together. Uh, um, and I brought that up for some reason, but I can't remember now. <laughs> And but we oh I, I know we, that's we decided to take the leap. Now's the time. So people knew us as the you know she was the one that worked for um, 
was working on Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. I, I was the one that had been working for George Abbott. But they did, you know, they, they wouldn't take it, however they were going to take us seriously about starting to produce. So the two of us decided to take a full page ad in Variety announcing that we were now going to be producing. And we listed the logos and the, you know, of all the shows we worked on. And um, can you use somebody with this kind of experience? Can you use two new producers with this kind of experience? And we started getting responses. The first one, of course, came from some guy in Ohio who had written a musical um, that takes place on an airplane. And he had designed special seats so that they could rock back or move, or, you know, you feel the up and, and uh, he, would, he was willing to sell them to us if we did his musical. And, I mean, it was absurd. Um, then the next one came, uh, that we got was a call from somebody who had a musical, and it was about cell division. And I remember saying, really? So how many people in the cast? He said, well, we start out with one, but then we've got about 500. I said, thanks, thanks very much. In the middle of all of that, we got a call from Ellen Newwald, who was a legitimate theater agent. And she said, um, I would really like you to come down to um, see a play that's off Broadway, off off Broadway. It was just for a couple of weekends, uh, called "Welcome to Andromeda." I represent the author and the director. She said, "And um, uh, it's a, you know, I would like you to come see it." The play was about a paraplegic, so there were two characters: his nurse and him. He couldn't move; he was paralyzed in bed. She, excuse me, of course, was mobile. So I, um, we went to see it, and I kept having to pinch myself to remind myself that they were actors because it was so real, so authentic. And I also was terribly impressed uh, with the amount of humor that the director had gotten from only one character moving, sight gags and everything. So when I came back, I, I, called, I, I called the agent, Ellen Newall, and I said, um, I don't know, I can't see that particular play being uh, commercial, having audiences really come to it and pay up money, uh, even if it was part of something else. I said, however, I would love to meet the director. You know, she's, well, he's with, he's out working at the Mark Tabor Forum. I said, well, I'm going to be going to LA. So she set up a lunch and the director was Tom Moore. And um, we had this lunch, we were going to, we met at one and like at 4.30, we're still talking. And um, I knew that someday we would work together. I just sensed the talent. And um, what I did, the next show I did was uh, Fortune of Men's Eyes, which Salminio directed. And then I did And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little with two other producers, and Mel Bernhardt directed that. And now we're talking about Greece. Yeah. And now I'm thinking the one thing, when I saw it in Chicago, it was a weekend thing they were doing in a improvised theater in the basement of an old trolley park. And they were running it on Friday and Saturday nights in that summer of August, of, I mean, that summer of 1971. My college roommate was out there that summer. He had become a dentist and he was taking a special course in orthodontry. And he called me and he said, you're not gonna believe this. He said, in this community theater, he said, on weekends, Friday and Saturday, they're doing a play all about the drapes and the drapettes that hung out behind our high school. In Baltimore, we didn't call them greasers. In Baltimore, we called them drapes and drapettes, the girls' <laughs> drapettes. 
and so I said, I asked around New York, and one person had heard of it. And they said, oh, it's some amateur community theater, uh, but I don't know much more than that. Phil, who was always the ultimate pessimist, all through high school and college, he never had a good word to say about anything. <laughs> it got to the point where he couldn't have a good word about anything because he didn't want to ruin his reputation. So when he called back and said, listen, you've got to come see this. He knew I was looking for a new show. I said, you know what? I better get on a plane and go. So he and his wife picked me up. We went right to the theater. There were no seats. They gave you newspapers to sit on. The scenery was brown painted paper, I assume, by the cast, and you could see the drip marks everywhere. And I remember thinking, gee, when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, putting on my own shows, we got these wooden frames and I pasted brown paper on and we painted on it, but no drip marks. However, when the curtain went up and the show started, I saw my whole high school yearbook come to life. I knew every one of the people. And the thing that, uh, and some of the songs that we kept for Broadway, like We Go Together, We Slight Name, Beauty School Dropout, they were in that workshop. However, there were some that, you know, were clinkers. But um, what I saw, you know, was the fact that these two guys, Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey, really had the talent to take this to another level, to turn it into a full musical. And um, the one thing that they did absolutely perfectly was that you totally believed these kids were real, that they, when the show was over, they did not change their costumes because that's their streetwear, and they jumped into an old jalapeno and went out for hamburgers. Of course, the book, which was 70% of the show, you could go out and get a hamburger yourself and come back and you wouldn't have missed a thing. But I knew they had it in them and I talked to them afterwards and I said, I think you guys could really, uh, Danny and Sandy were part of the ensemble. They were not like the central characters or anything, but we talked that night talking about them. Uh, I said, you guys have the talent to turn this into a full Broadway musical. So if you want to move to New York, I'll work with you as you develop the script that we can actually show a director and so forth and so on. And um, I said, because the one thing that you've got done perfectly is this authenticity. So every Think decision we make from director, choreographer, designers, whatever, has to be with that in mind. So, of course, when I saw, when we're talking about Greece and other directors are being mentioned and whatnot, suddenly it dawned on me, wait, Tom Moore. He had the authenticity, you know, in that play that we saw, Welcome to Andromeda. And also, while sitting in Chicago in that uh, basement theater on a piece of paper, <clears throat> I thought of Pat Birch as a choreographer because Pat could make dancers. We weren't going to have a chorus. Obviously, I, I, with the authenticity they set up, I didn't want to expand it to have a dancing chorus or a singing chorus. So the principals would have to do everything. And Pat was great with making actors who could move look like real dancers. And also, in The Me Nobody Knows, she worked with these kids and you really believe they weren't performers at all. You believe that she found them in the Bronx or something. So real. So well, as soon as I got back, I went to Pat's house and played this moth-eaten tape of some of the songs that uh, the only thing that Jim Warren really had. And um, it was interesting. She looked very confused. And it was her husband, Bill Becker, who was the founder of um, Janice Films, who turned Pat. He said, Pat, this might be this could be something. So 
she looked, then she sort of got interested, but she said, but isn't this backwards? I mean, don't you have to get the director first, and then with the director you decide who will choreograph? I said, yeah, that's traditional, but I said the situation here is that any director that we would want to get who didn't want you as the choreographer is the wrong director for this show. And um, then I, you know, I got time to fly in from the Mark Taper Forum where he was working to um, meet with the authors and, um, uh, and meet with Pat. And uh, he was a little late getting to Pat's uh, because he, he wanted to splurge for a cab so he wouldn't be late, but the cab got stuck in traffic. The subway would have been much faster. But anyway, and she was a little itchy because she was supposed to have a meeting coming up that morning with John um, Hausman from the Lincoln Center, you know, theater school. So um, Tom arrived. We put them both on a couch, and they started talking to each other. And boy, just like that, you know, they became a team. You know, they hit it off. And Jim and Warren had sat with us in, in um, Joe Allen's, to in, to, where I introduced them to Tom. And um, Warren is very inhibited, you know, quiet, inhibited with a stare. Jim is very extroverted. So, of course, Jim and Tom, uh, Tom and, and Jim Jacobs really started talking and everything. So afterwards, Warren says to me, I'm not sure I like him. I said, why? He said, well, he only paid attention to Jim. He didn't pay attention to me. This is called producing. So I had Tom fly all the way back in again from uh, LA. And now a new lunch at Joanne's. And I said, Tom, pay, focus on Warren. Which he did very well. And afterwards, Warren said, yeah, I like him. Let's, let's hire him. Because the authors have approval of those things. So um, now we had our team and we were, we were ready to go. Uh, Carrie Robbins, I knew from Forest Park, my high school in Baltimore. She also went there. And um, I had liked seeing some of her work that she had done around town. And um, I thought she certainly knows the period. We were there together. So um, I, I wanted to introduce her to Tom. And we had a meeting. And um, Tom's talking about the characters to her. And I'm sort of listening. And then um, she's not clear about a couple of things. So I said, uh, Carrie. He was talking about Rizzo. I said, Carrie, Arlene Sinsky. Because Arlene Sinsky was our high school Rizzo. <laughs> and she had the bleach thing like from the um, um, Dick, uh, what you call him, dance show. Um, he did the New Year's Eve thing every... Oh, Dick Clark. Dick Clark, yeah. And um, uh, she looked like that hard. You know, she was really tough. And uh, so, so, so Carrie said, oh, okay, Tom, I know exactly what you're talking about. And we did that all the way through. Um, and then um, uh, Carrie had worked uh, with um, Doug Schmidt. And I had seen a unit set that he did at the Lincoln Center, which I thought was terrific, because we were not going to have multiple sets for this. We were trying to do everything in a, in a unit type situation. And um, so he turned out to be perfect to do the sets. And that's how, you know, we put the team together. We auditioned over a thousand people to find exactly the ones that could act, because that was so important if it be the authenticity. Sing, of course, they had to have their work, and be able to dance or look like they're really dancing. And uh, so it was not an easy task. Uh, so we, with the original cast that we came up with, as well as all the replacements, because we did the same kind of 
a rigid casting um, uh, system. Um, were especially talented people, which is, I think, why so many of them went on to uh, fame. You know, like John Travolta, yeah. uh, Mary Lou Henner, Jeff Conaway, Barry Bostwick, Richard Gere. Um, you know, and I think that's because of the stringent auditions that we had casting extremely talented people. And so I'd love to um, to go back here just a little bit to talk about some of the stuff we mentioned briefly. But before Greece, your first show, I believe, was Fortune Men's Eyes on Broadway, yes. which you're mentioning. And so, how did that happen? Did that also come out of the Adam Variety, or um, no? Well, that did come out of the Adam Variety because um, the agent that called me to see Tom's play also represented the playwright for Fortune Men's Eyes. So when I, since I was going out there and, I, and she arranged for me to meet Tom, she said, um, now another client of mine has a play running on, uh, in a small theater on La Cienega Boulevard in South Minio directed it. I'd like you to go see that. So we went to see, Maxine and I went to see that play and we were really taken with it. I mean, talk about theatrical and controversy a little bit because it, you know, it was gay themed, in, well, prison gay themed. In a way, and um, uh, and it was you know we we thought it was a, an exciting piece of theater, and so I um, uh, I sent a note backstage uh, to Sal Minio, and I said uh, that we were producers from New York. We were just starting out as producers from New York, and we saw the show, and we would love to talk to him about it, and we'll come backstage the next night, and we did, and it was very interesting because. Um, we gave, we, I sent him that ad with all the, uh, our, you know, with all of our um, credits and everything. So we go backstage and he greets us and he said, oh my God, you're, ki you're young kids, which we were then. And he said, um, because I'm reading all these credits and the people that were involved with you in these different things, I thought I was meeting Lawrence Lagner and his wife. Now they were, all, they were at that time, probably in their eighties. You know, 90s, you know, they were legendary producers from the theater guild. So we all laughed. And then we went out um, to one of the restaurants that was very popular on Sunset Boulevard with his manager. And um, we hit it off immediately, you know. And he said, yeah, you know, let's do it. And I'll never forget his manager said something that I had repeated year after year. And he was talking about agents. And he said, you'll be dealing with me. He said, not an agent. He says, an agent is somebody who calls you on Monday and wishes you a good weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Sal was great. You know, really, um, people were intimidated by him because he kept that look from Rempel without a cause. You know, he wore the black hat, cowboy hat type thing, leather a lot. But he was really very gentle and easily generous and easily taken advantage of. Uh, too many times, but um, but you know we formed a great friendship. And what made you decide to bring that particular play off Broadway rather than on, or was that just the theater that was available? Quite a good question, Charles, because that thought did go through our heads, um, and it was, and um, we decided in the end because of the theme of the play, and um, uh, so forth that Broadway. To, to open on Broadway just like that um, probably would not succeed. 
that we'd have trouble getting audiences to because it was so different um, than anything up to that point that they had seen. Uh, so that's why we decided to do it um, off-Broadway. And we did it at Stage 73, which eventually became um, the home of um, uh, the nonprofit theater group. Uh, name skips me, as some names do now. When I was a kid, I had the same problem. It was called, uh, it was called um, absent-mindedness. But now, at my age, it's called uh, senior moment. <laughs> but um, in the theater, the thing about Stage 73 was it was, it was, a, it was a proscenium and it was a wide theater, so all the sight lines were really terrific. Uh, and we were able to build a multi-level set and all kinds of things that you didn't always see off-Broadway. Um, so, you know, that, that was exciting. And how did you find investors at this early point? Was that easy or was that a challenge? Another very good question. Thank you. Really. Um, people had been saying to me, you know, as time went on and when I was working for Georgia Abbott and whatever, when you're ready to produce, you know, let me know. I'll, I'll invest. Now, you never know whether that is <laughs> or whether that's just people talking. But when we uh, were ready to, you know, put, we were putting together uh, Fortune Men's Eyes, we had, a, um, if you can believe it, by today's standards, we had a budget of $50,000. It would be probably uh, a million something or more off Broadway now. But anyway, um, I went to those people who all said they would um, uh, support me, and they did. So we were very quickly able to raise the budget in about in a few weeks, which was quite remarkable. But I had been sort of setting these people up for quite a while, the minute I started working for George Abbott. And some of them knew me from even earlier days and kept saying, someday you're going to produce. But um, it was it, they really came through. And what did you sort of learn from that first experience about, about producing the U.S. Oh, good. Uh, let's see. I mean, you know, you always learn so much. Um, one of the things, I mean, this happened over and over again, but um, so the lesson gets reinforced. One of the things that I've realized is when I go, when I have a gut feeling or a little itch, whatever it is, if I don't listen to it, I'm going to get in trouble, you know, and um, there were a few things in that production that I was a little uncomfortable with. I thought it was too vulgar, especially at that time. Um, and there were a few other things, but, you know, I, I didn't um, insist or make a huge deal to get. And um, I think we did suffer from that. You know, I mean, we, we, suffered, we got very mixed reviews, mostly not ter terrific. Some. Um, you know, and I think we could have probably run uh, longer. We did pay back, but we didn't, um, make, you know, it wasn't a big, big profit thing for anybody. Um, and we had success, we had a successful um, engagement we, of another, you know, we did another company for San Francisco, and believe it, of all places, Hawaii, Honolulu had a good run with the show. But, um, you know, with each, with each experience, that, and, and of course, Flops teach you a lot, you know, and I've had some of those. Yeah, you know, I, 
I've had all these exciting shows, most of them have been turned out well, but then there's a few I'd like to completely forget. <laughs> but I've learned from them. And so you mentioned the mixed reviews, and as a producer, what is your relationship like with the critics? And Well, your relationship with the critics is, um, if they like you, it's good, if they don't. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, 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 I've known, I mean, with some of the critics, we knew each other, but they write what, they're, what they feel, you know, they write what they see, and there's nothing you can do about that. Uh, of course, you love it when they interview it, like when Walter Curry gave Grease a great review, while Clive Barnes was really, ooh, and a couple of you, and a couple of you, and the Post, it was a really negative review. Daily to, uh, the Daily News, which was important in those days, was a rave. But when uh, Walter Kerr gave us a rave, we were like beside ourselves. And I got to credit Betty Lee Hunt, my press agent, because she told Walter Kerr that if he didn't bring his 16-year-old son, I think he was 16 at the time, something like that, she, he, she wasn't going to let him in. And she wanted him to see it through his son's eyes. And that was so smart because he loved the show and gave us a great review. But, um, but you can't, I mean, you can't uh, try to influence the critics. They're going to write what they, you know, what they see and what they feel. Yeah. And I'm curious to know, this is a question that actually that Tom Moore told me to ask you, which is um, how do you gauge how well a show is doing, like from sitting in the audience or from being around the theater? Oh. Uh, from that point of view. Well, the thing that George Abbott taught me was, he said, the only one who has objectivity by the time you're ready to face an audience, especially a paying audience, is the producer. Because by then, the director is totally focused on the stage pictures and the performances and is not seeing the whole forest. The costume designer by then thinks the entire budget is for costumes. Uh, so the producer is the one that really listens to the audience and sees, because every they don't do this anymore to my knowledge, but in those days, um, shows went out of town to work on the show, to rewrite, to do everything in front of audiences. And there was always a meeting in the producer's suite after the show, all the creatives, and he would sit around and talk about it. And the producer would bring up certain things and they would all talk about it. Um, Greece uh, did not go out of town, but we had the equivalent here in New York of three weeks of previews in which we practically rewrote so much and changed so much, listening to the audience. So, you know, the audience is not going to tell you necessarily what's wrong, but they will alert you that you better find the answer. For example, it's like if you go to the doctor and you say, my elbow is just killing me, I can't and the doctor examines you and everything, he says, yes, you're feeling it in the elbow, but it's really your leg we got to fix. And that's like an audience is not going to tell you what's wrong. Now, on Greece, worst things I can do just wasn't working in previews. Adrian Barbeau is out there singing your heart out, you know, it's, we all love that song. It was a uh, bookend to look at me, I'm Sandra D in the first act. It was about the double standard in those days uh, between you know girls and, and guys, and uh, it just be, you know, and therefore it slowed down things. So 
it was hard to get them back. You know, when you have a thing that doesn't work, you lose the audience, and then you have to try to get them back. So Jim and Warren came over to me, uh, you know, after several previews of this, and he said, Ken, we will not make an argument if you want to cut it. And I said, I don't want to cut it. You know, I said, and I know Tom doesn't want to cut it because of the reasons I just mentioned. You know, it, it's a bookend, it makes a statement, and I love the song, we always have. But it was frustrating, and I knew we couldn't go on because you can't have something pull the show down like that. Fate was on our side. I told you that certain shows were blessed, and Greece was certainly one of them. So a few nights later, uh, Sylvia Hersher, who was president of E.H. Mars Music Publishers, they had just bought our score to publish. And she walked into the theater before the show, and we're standing in the back, and I'm telling her, I said, you know, we made a lot of changes. Some of them seem to be working. But this, we're stumped by. And so we watch it together as Adrian sings worse things. And of course, you know, and she looks at me and she says, Ken, it's not the song. It's the scene leading into the song. They're at this party, and in the movie, it's a drive-in, but here in, um, uh, in the show, it's, it's a party in Jan's basement. And word gets around, Rizzo's you know, pregnant. Nobody, and Sylvia Hersher said, nobody gives a damn. Nobody cares. You know, it's like, um, why should we care when she sings the song then? So I brought it up at the, um, you know, the night's meeting of all the, of the creatives, and uh, we talked about it. And then Jim and Warren um, stayed a little bit later to talk a little more with Tom, the director. And then they went home and overnight wrote a whole new scene in which now, when word gets around that she's pregnant, Sonny runs over and says, Rizzo, you need any help? You know, can we help out? You need money? And others are doing the same. She's very defensive about it. But now we see what's going on and we see that they really care about her. So when she sang the song after we put that scene in the next day, big applause, huge applause, and ever since. So uh, that was a great lesson. But uh, there were other things like, um, you know, I, I'm standing in the audience, I'm, I'm in the audience watching, like in the first couple of previews, and there was one song that obviously had to go. But Pat and Tom had agreed the song probably would have to go. Jim and Warren were so cooperative about everything. They really wanted this song to stay in, so we let it in for one performance. And it was obvious to me watching that audience <laughs> didn't work. And again, it slowed everything down. Yeah. Um, and there was a, a little number in the second act called Magic Changes, which was done at the party. But, um, you know, if we were going to cut that song, we needed something right there that would give exposition and keep the show going. And, um, so we put it in as a big production number, which Duty's playing the guitar and Danny says, what you doing, Duty? It introduced him as Danny's sidekick. And it also is a song about the court changes in 1950s rock and roll. So um, the minute that went in, it, the audience loved it. So we knew that was a right decision. But you know, during the previews, you have this all, no matter how, now, I always say, <clears throat> depending how well you've done your homework will depend on how well you can handle the surprises that you're going to get in front of an audience, because you always will, in front of a paying audience especially. 
they're not so forgiving. And um, they let you know if they are not responding. You have to figure out why. And that's the job of the creative team and the producer. And you mentioned that the writers of Greece were very willing to change things, but have you had writers who aren't? And how do you deal with that if that's? You keep asking excellent questions, Charles. I, I'm fascinated here. <laughs> um, I try always, before I get enthusiastic about doing a project, I try always to uh, sort of, um, well, psych out the writer, you know, to see if he's a winner or a loser. Is he, um, if, is he compulsed to fail or is he compulsed to win? Because otherwise, you've got nowhere to go. It's not going to work. Um, and I usually have been right in my estimations and not doing a project that I thought the writer was not a winner. Um, but, you know, I did get involved in one project where I didn't sense that or I decided not to pay attention. Another thing, if you don't listen to your gut, you're going to get in trouble. And it just didn't work. Um, but uh, fortunately, the projects that I did work on the, you know, the writers were very uh, cooperative. And I always say to them, right now, I said, the director is the boss here, as far as what's going to be on that stage, what it's going to look like. And as long as he's our director, if you, if we trust him, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have comments. It doesn't mean you don't have discussions. It doesn't mean I don't say something at one of those meetings. It just means in general. And if you trust him that way, you've got maybe a 50-50 chance of having a success. But if you don't, and he's still the director because we're not replacing him for whatever, you know, I don't feel it's worthy to replace him. You just have a quarrel. I said, if that's the case, and you don't trust the director, there's a 90% chance it's going to fail. So you choose. And, and how do you hire directors? Well, you saw what went on and how I hired Tom. Yeah. You know, um, but I also hired Tom when we did the musical over here with John Travolta and Andy Ranking and the Andrews sisters, who, was, who were still sort of popular back then. Um, other shows, um, oh, here's a good one. Agnes of God, okay. I knew it had to be a tour de force for three you know, major actresses. Well, I, Agnes would sort of be a new find, uh, but she still had to have that kind of quality. And uh, the other two, the psychiatrist and the mother superior, had to be marquee type names, but they had to also be powerful actresses, skilled and trained. Um, so to direct this, you know, it was really difficult to start thinking. Uh, the director that had done the pre-Broadway, uh, or the debut of the play, uh, which was in the Louisville Play Festival, and then the Baltimore Center Stage, which is where I saw it. Um, he did an okay job. He did a good job with the play, but I didn't see him having the energy and the imagination to handle the kind of actors and create the kind of atmosphere that I thought we needed on Broadway. And so we were discussing different directors, and then I get a call from an agent at uh, William Morris, uh, who says to me, calls my general manager, she didn't call me, called my general manager Eddie Davis, 
And she said, um, has Ken decided on a director yet? He said, no, he's looking. Uh, would he consider Michael Lindsay Hogg? So he said, I'll, I'll talk to Ken. So Eddie calls me and he says, I, uh, this is the phone call. And would you consider Michael Lindsay Hogg? And I said, oh my God, I never thought of him. And nobody even mentioned him. Good for her. Because he had directed um, uh, Whose Life Is It Anyway? And they replaced, um, uh, the replacement was uh, Mary Tyler Moore. And he put her in that show and directed her. And she gave an incredible performance. I don't think she's ever given anything like that before, before she died. I don't think she ever did that in the rest of her career. I was so impressed. And I thought, he really knows how to handle, quote, the divas, you know, and to get performances like that. And so we met and I knew right away that you know, Michael should be our director. So that's how that came about. You know, you just have to rely on faith that you'll find what you're looking for if you listen to your gut. That is where I ended part one of my interview with Ken Wasteman. And now, here's part two. So I would love to um, to restart our interview by talking about And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little, which was one sure. of our early Broadway shows. And so how did this come up? Well, actually, um, uh, after I did uh, Fortune of Men's Eyes, um, the um, Seth Shapiro, who was one of the producers on Reardon, uh, called me and said they were doing this new play. And did I want to come in with him and um, his other partner? And um, on the, uh, it was Julie Harris. And at that point, uh, they hadn't cast the other characters yet. But um, I read the play, and um, I got caught up with it. And of course, um, uh, I loved the idea of working on a play that had Julie Harris in it. And um, at first, they um, they wanted to, um, I'm trying to remember the actress that they thought, uh, Seth thought should be the one to play the sister, but, uh, and they were also considering um, Estelle Getty. Not Estelle Getty, I'm a little bit nuts today, it's Sunday. Oh. <laughs> so, um, um, Estelle Parsons? Estelle Parsons, right. And um, so there was a debate and I, and I said, wait, wait, there's no debate. You know, Estelle Parsons is still fresh from, um, even though it was a few years before that, it was still fresh from um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. You know, she was a terrific actress, basically a stage actress. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, so I kind of pushed um, for her. Also in the cast was Ray Allen and um, uh, another terrific uh, actress. I remember seeing her when I went as a kid to see Dan Yankee, she was the reporter, you know, the, um, and hung out in the, uh, uh, the changing rooms and all of that. Um, so I remembered her. And um, so that's how we put the cast together. We went to Boston and um, it was very interesting because Ray Allen, uh, we, weren't, you know, uh, we weren't too happy with her performance. She was sort of flatlining a little bit. And um, then, they, they started the director, Mel Bernhardt, and uh, Seth Shapiro uh, talked about uh, replacing her. And I said, wait a minute. You know, I, I said, she's a terrific actress. And um, I said, Mel, you know, have you been really giving her the attention that she needs right at this point? So we also tried out in those days, you went from one city to another. We tried out in Washington, D.C. also at the National Theater. And by the time we got to uh, Washington, he had worked with her and she was doing great. She ended up winning the Tony Award for that play. So uh, 
you know, you never know what's going to happen. We opened in New York, and um, uh, we had also considered um, Nancy Marchand for one of the um, uh, the roles. And uh, no, no, wait a minute. Eileen Heckert, Nancy Marchand was in the show, but we had considered Eileen Heckert for one of the roles. And the agent said she wasn't interested. And uh, I'm standing outside the Morasco Theater where we played on Broadway, one of our first previews in New York after being out of town. And Eileen Heckert is there. And uh, it's intermission, she comes out of the theater and she says, wow, she comes over to Paul. She says, how come you didn't think of me for uh, this part? <laughs> we looked at her. And I said, well, we did, but your agent turned it down. She was a little shocked, but this happens. I can tell other stories at another time. Anyway, the show opened, and the reviews were uh, kind of mixed, but we were doing business. And uh, then um, uh, Julie Harris came to us, and she said, uh, you know, if, you, if you, we run until the summer, and then um, you, we close here in New York, and you let me off for the summer, I will do a whole national tour. So we waited, uh, you know, we waited in our minds, and um, the show was, uh, the show was working. You know, we were breaking even a little bit more maybe each week, but we didn't have like, oh, we're definitely going to pay off, and this is definitely going to, you know. So we thought, putting it out on the road with Julie Harris, we could certainly pay back the rest of the investment and then make a profit for the investors, which is exactly you know what happened. What was Julie Harris like to work with the star? Oh, well, that was that was quite an experience, you know. Um, watching an actress each night, you know, layer on the performance. When we first got to Boston, I was a little, you know, Julie Harris, you know, where where's the dynamite? But each night I watched her, you know, laying more on, laying more on, reacting the way the other characters are. And finally, by the time we got to even Washington, but definitely when we got to New York, she was giving this tour de force Julie Harris performance. But it was fascinating to watch how she worked up to it. You know, and um, you know, an actor once said to me, does a producer do anything besides raise the money? And I said to the actor, well, does an actor do anything besides learning the lines? <laughs> Julie Harris is an example that there's a lot more to do than just learning the lines. And so that brings me to my next question, which is when you do first start working on a show, how do you decide like whether you're going to invest your own money in it or is that something you do at all? Well, a real producer, the kind that I was raised with when I got to Broadway, uh, because he wants to continue producing and he knows he's going to have flops, he doesn't put his own money in. That's why you have investors, you know, and they, some investors will stay with you show after show after show. But uh, they also some come in, and if it doesn't make it, they're finished. But it's called OPM, other people's money. That's how you stay in business. Because if you put your own money you know, in, you had a flop, you're on the hook anyway. You can lose a lot of money when the show flops. Because the um, producer is the general partner. And um, all the debts, the budget doesn't cover, like losses out of town, losses in previews, if you keep the show running a few weeks. Uh, the producer ends up having to pay that himself. So um, if he's already got money in the show and the show is not doing well, he's really in a position. But I always say, you know, um, a producer, you know, he has to um, he has to persuade a writer to uh, let him option his property, or he has to 
persuade a composer to write the music for a musical he has an idea for. He has to persuade a theater owner to give him a theater. He has to persuade um, the audiences to come through the press and the, and the other things you do for marketing. And if it all fails, well, he then has to um, sell his uh, mother, his wife, his house to pay the debts. And so um, we talked a little bit about Greece last time and then after Greece, your next show was over here. And so what do you think made that the perfect time to bring back the Andrews sisters and have that nostalgia? You know, I, I don't do by saying it's the perfect time. Like with Greece, it turned out to be the perfect time because I did not know that that fall when we were getting ready and preparing Greece for, for uh, New York, you know, for Broadway, um, that there was a buzz going around the different college campuses um, about the, the, a revival of the 50s. They were having 50s parties. And, and, this, and the 50s was an era that most people had forgotten completely about because, you know, of what the 60s were. So it made it seem like it, it went back to the Civil War, the 50s. So uh, I was not aware that this was happening. I just, I just, you know, when I, when I saw this production of it, uh, you know, the one that was um, mostly booked some songs in Chicago on those weekend nights in that summer, you know, I just thought, wow, whatever this, you know, whatever it is, I could see people reacting to this. You know, I, I um, but I didn't know. Um, in our book, you know, Greece, Tell Me More, Tell Me More, we talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, it's backstage stories of all of the uh, original cast members, the replacement members, the famous ones, the not so famous ones. But anyway, we cover some of that. I had no idea. It was like uh, the 50s, what a difference between now and then. We wanted to, um, uh, to get some 50s music just to listen to the rock and roll of the 50s and hear some. There was only what we couldn't find it anywhere. There was only one store and that was in the village, you know, that had these ancient records from the 1950s. So, uh, and the same thing with um, the Andrews sisters. They were still popular um, when, in 1974 when we opened that show. Uh, but um, I, what, the way the, that show had evolved was that I, I got a demo record from the Sherman brothers, Richard and Robert Sherman, who had written Mary Poppins, you know, and other big movies for Disney. And they had done this little show called Victory Canteen uh, which they were doing in a little theater um, in LA, in Hollywood. And um, he sent me this demo and it was basically just instrumental of some of the songs. They sure sounded like the big band songs from the 40s. And in it, they also sent me Patty uh, Andrews singing a couple of the songs because she was in the Victory Canteen production they did out there. And then they sent me the script. And there was something about the sound. And also as a kid, um, I was like three or four years old, and um, I remember my mother walking me home. I think I was still in a stroller, and we're walking by this house, and the porch was out near the street, and there were three women on the porch, and they were all dressed in these navy blue suits with white, you know, blouses, and they had, you know, the fit, the hairdos of the 40s, and they're singing, um, what a, a bugle boy, but you know, um, they're one of their famous hits, uh, and. Um, I knew the song. I didn't know them. I never heard of them, but I knew the song because it was always playing all the time. You know, the, the Andrews and my mother said the Andrews. That's the Andrews sisters, and I thought, oh my God, I, they were the people singing that song. You know, oh, so they're famous. And I, for a minute, I thought it was them. They were the Andrews sisters. 
But then I noticed they were lip syncing to a radio, uh, a troller player, you know, and I knew it was just neighborhood girls doing it. I even, I realized, even though I was like four. Um, but from then on, I was a big fan of the Andrews sisters. There is a, there's a, there's a saying around this business that when you're four or five, six, when you're in elementary school and you fall in love with a star, absolutely idolize the star and your fans, never meet them. <laughs> because your image, your whole thing will be completely ruined. And um, in a couple of cases, that's exactly what happened in my experience. And the Andrews sisters were one of them because, oh my God, they were. Um, now, by the time we did the show, there were two of them. It was Maxine and Patty. Patty was the blonde one in the center. And uh, Laverne, who had been the third one, she had uh, died by then, but she was probably the smartest of them because she was an alcoholic and she married a guy who owned packaged liquor stores all over California. But um, the uh, but the end of the two sisters were um, I had no idea that they were enemies, you know, because they behaved pretty well when we were arranging to have them in the show. And, uh, we had one problem where um, they each wanted more money than the other. Oh. That caused quite a quite a bit of disruption and we finally solved that. Uh, but other than that, you know, they seemed to get along. And then we realized right around the time we were opening in New York that they didn't like each other at all. <laughs> and backstage there was some scene that went on and Patty kicked uh, Patty's husband Wally in the crotch and he fell down the stairs. I mean, this was an ongoing thing. <laughs> and. Um, but their sound, Patty Andrews' sound on that demo that the Sharon Brothers had sent me was the sound of the Andrews sisters. And she was singing solo. It was such a famous voice, you know, all of them. And um, so, so uh, we went, when we went to Philadelphia for the tryout, uh, after that first performance, there were lines of kids waiting at the stage door to get Patty and Maxine's autographs. And I remember I, I turned to... Um, the company manager and I said, uh, why are all these kids in line like this? He says, because they see them every Saturday morning on television. They were in all the Abbott Costello movies. And at that time, they were showing them nationwide every Saturday. So of course, we had young kids being fans of the Andrews sisters. And uh, I, that I wasn't, I, I knew Broadway audiences at that time still knew who they were and everything. But I, I didn't realize that all these kids were fans. So um, I wish that he didn't really meet them in person and they just got their autographs. <laughs> so I, I interviewed uh, Beth Fowler who was in over here and she, yes. just, and she described this sort of like third act that happened after the curtain call where they sang some of their famous songs. And so was that your decision or how was that decision? No, no, no. Um, it was like, a, um, you know, I don't remember who exactly the decision it was, uh, but I remember we discussed that and we asked them if they would because you know, those songs were still in the minds of everybody, you know, and when they did that medley, uh, the audiences went crazy. It was after the curtain call and then they come out, you know, like their final curtain call. And then they did a medley of all their famous hits. And the interesting thing was uh, that, you know, they look like there they are holding hands, Patty and Maxine of the Andrew sisters, and they're singing all those famous songs we all know, except that Maxine had arthritic fingers and Patty was squeezing them so hard that Maxine was always in terrible pain. <laughs> they did not get along. <laughs> and so what made the, or like, why did you decide not to have a tour? I know. Oh, oh, okay. Your sound went out a little bit, but I, I heard the question. What, 
Okay, we were supposed to do, the original plan was to um, run a year in New York, then do a national tour for a year, and um, then possibly do um, a gig in London on the West End. And, uh, you know, and then the Andrews sisters, uh, because of all of that happening, they were booked in Las Vegas after that, you know, on their own to do a big act in Vegas. So um, now we're coming to the time of the national tour. And I told you that we had had this whole big commotion thing because in the beginning of the, uh, when we were first negotiating with them, they each wanted more than the other. That came back to haunt us. You know, so Patty's not gonna go out on tour unless she gets paid more than Maxine. Maxine's not gonna go out on the tour unless she gets paid more than uh, Patty. So we were sort of like, you know, at wit's end here. And finally, because we just could not get any reasoning going with anybody, um, we canceled the tour. And as a result, they lost their Vegas oh. also. They never did get to play Vegas. Uh, and it was just one of those tragedies because I think people on, if we went on tour, the audiences would have had a great time. Um, but they were they became quite impossible. Their anger toward themselves uh, was what guided their, their thinking, not any sanity. Yeah. or even economics, because they would have made a lot of money on the road. So afterwards, uh, Patty's husband, now the history with Patty Andrews is that uh, she was originally married to Marty Melcher, Melcher, and they lived in Beverly Hills right behind Doris Day. And at some point, Marty Melcher started sneaking through the hedges, <laughs> having an affair with Doris Day. So Patty got wind of it. And she took a baseball bat and she went through the hedges and she started breaking all of Darstay's windows. On the, and the, Darstay called the Beverly Hills police and they said, you know what? She'll get tired. She'll go home. You can replace the windows. Because the Beverly Hills police were so schooled in not causing any, you know, big scandals if they could help it. And um, so they got, to, they got divorced. He did marry Patty Andrews eventually. No, no, I'm sorry. Um, he did marry Doris Day, of course. And then Patty, shortly after that, uh, she had a rehearsal pianist named Wally Weschler. It was a little similar, actually. And they got married. So it was very interesting because some of the big band guys that came from the 40s and Dor Tommy Dorsey's players and others would come to see the show and then they would come. And some of them would see Wally, or, who was now with her, not doing anything, but he was... Um, had been, you know, the rehearsal pianist and then her husband. So they would call him Melcher because Weschler and Melcher were similar. And Patty would get very upset, but that's showbiz. And so this wouldn't be so much a question about over here because it was so built around the Andrew sisters, but for a, for a different show, how do you go through the process of sort of replacing people and do you try to bring in other stars or how do you make that decision? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a good question. You ask a lot of good questions. Um, when you are doing the original company and you finally zero in on the cast that you think is perfect, you know, to be the cast that opens the show, uh, including the star, if, you, if it's a show that has stars. Um, and so the idea of how would you replace them just seems like, forget it. There's no way, there's not gonna be any way. But of course, they creep out of the woodwork once the show's a hit and thoughts creep, creep out of your head too. 
And so just like on Fiddler, um, I, I was told that Hal Prince was really upset because he thought, you know, um, what's his name? Um, the star of Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, it's Zero Mustel. Zero Mustel, thank you. Was so fabulous and so terrific and was the character that he kind of resigned himself that they'd have to close after he left. Uh, of course, they replaced Zero Mustel with many other terrific actors who were great Tevius and the show had an unbelievable run. So um, the same thing you know, happens when you, um, you think that there's nobody to replace. Torch Song Trilogy, people said, well, what are you gonna do when Harvey leaves? He's not gonna stay you know, with the show for the entire run. I said, well, we'll find a replacement. How do you know? Because every show that ever was in this situation found a replacement that worked just as well. You know, maybe it's not the original star, but the original star is the one that creates the character. So the original actor or star in the show, they create the character. So the other people that come in who you feel are good enough to replace them are really taking on that character. They're adding their own touches to it, but they're taking on a character created like Danny Zuko was created by Barry Bostwick, you know, based on how it was written and what we did. And so other people that came in and took over that role, like Richard Gere and other people, they, they started out with what had been created by Barry Bostwick, and then they added their own personality to it. So in many ways, you know, as the show, show keeps going and new people come in, uh, the role can get more enriched as you go along. And how much do you sort of have a say, or do you attend all the auditions or how does that go? Uh, in the beginning, um, yes. You know, when we're, when we're auditioning people in the beginning. Now, once the show is running, the casting people will hold um, auditions every so often. In the case of Greece, because of the tours and, the, and having to replace people on tour and eventually in the show and so forth, the casting people would run auditions every week. But we didn't go to those. Um, they would then sort out people. They knew what we were looking for. They knew what each character was. And then we would be called in um, when we were actually casting something, like a replacement on a tour or a new company, and then we would be there for those auditions. But, you know, it's very important. Um, uh, you, the casting people don't choose the actors. They bring the actors to the attention of the director and the producer and the musical, the choreographer. Uh, and then we have to make that decision. Basically, you don't ever want the director to have to work with an actor he doesn't want to work with. However, if it's a major star, very often that star has been chosen before you even choose the director. But in all other cases, you know, you, you want to listen to how the director feels. You don't want to tell him to hire somebody that um, he's not comfortable, wouldn't be comfortable with. However, one of the things that I do when I'm at these auditions, with, you know, finally we get to a point where we haven't been really enthusiastic about anybody. This happened a few times, several times on Greece. And finally, you know, because we're all worn out and the director will say to the casting person, well, I guess we could go with her or him, you know, and I would always say, no, we're not happy. You're not totally happy. There's got to be somebody else. And the casting people said, we've been through everybody. So then I would say, well, does that mean that we, it, since we've been through everybody and there's nobody to do this part, does that mean we have to write the part out? Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> And I don't know how the universe works, but invariably, within a day or two, they would bring in the exact perfect person for this part. 
you know, in the, in a, many times. So with um, with Torshong Trilogy, which you were mentioning earlier, were you involved in that show off-Broadway or did you just take it from off-Broadway to Broadway? No, no, no. Actually, the way that happened was, the show had started out at La Mama. That's where um, Harvey developed it. And the Glines were involved in that too. And they, um, uh, the Glines was a nonprofit producing organization off, off-Broadway, mainly off-Broadway. Uh, and their their um, purpose, you know, was to support gay theater and gay playwrights and so forth. Um, I get a call from my press agent, Betty Lee Hunt, who had been with me since the beginning. And uh, she said, um, we, her partner, uh, Maria, she's Maria and I went over, Maria Pucci, we went over to the Richard Allen Center at the Lincoln Center. It's a small black box theater there. She said, and we saw this play called Tort Song Trilogy, and you've got to come with us to see it. We want to see it again, and we want to bring you. Um, I, I said, what's it about? She gave me a little briefing. She, and she said, it's, I said, well, she said, now, I got to tell you. She said, we got there at 6 o'clock, and it wasn't over till 11.30. I said, really? <laughs> yeah, and you, you can't, during the, there's three acts, uh, and she said, and you, and you can't go, like, leave to go to the bathroom or anything during the acts because you'd have to cross the stage to get out of there. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll be prepared. So we go, and I'm watching this play, and um, I'm fascinated totally fascinated. It is so universal what Harvey's talking about, what the play is talking about. And I really thought that uh, it would have to be cut down somewhat, of course, but that it would go on Broadway. The Broadway audiences would embrace it. And uh, that was proven when we finally, there's a whole thing of how I finally got Harvey to agree to go to Broadway. But after the opening, um, one of my investors, a, a couple that I had gone to camp with, they met at camp, they got married. They live in Southern Virginia, very, very conservative people. Back then they were staunch Republicans. They've changed over the years, <laughs> so many others. Um, and they were basically kind of naive, you know, just living down there. I remember we took, I took them to Sardi's one time and Barry, the, the husband, ordered steak tartare, but then he said, I want it medium rare. <laughs> Never let him forget that. Anyway, they of course invested in Tortzlaw, not really knowing what it was all about and everything. They came to the opening, and the next morning they came up to my office, and they said, um, wow, what an experience. And she said, you know, you know what it showed us? The icing might be slightly different, but the cake's exactly the same. And I thought, if that's the message that we're getting out to uh, heterosexual audiences, that's great, you know? Yeah. But at first, Harvey was totally convinced that um, Broadway audiences would not embrace this play. So that was that. You know, I forgot about it. They ended up uh, going downtown and they did a production at, um, um, right, right down at, uh, in the village at the Astor Playhouse, I think it was called then. And um, I forgot about it. Now, it shows you how fate has set your part in so many projects and things. So now I've just landed from a trip to London. I'm really got jet lag and I'm exhausted. And I get a call from Mary Lou Henner. And she said, I'm in town with my sister. She said, and we're, um, we're gonna be at uh, Charlie's restaurant after we see, I don't know what show they were seeing. And she said, um, would, would you come meet us? Because I hadn't seen her sister in such a long time. And I said, oh, I just got off a plane. I'm so jet lagged. And I said, I think we're supposed to see each other tomorrow at this thing. She said, my sister has to go back to Chicago tomorrow morning. I said, oh, and then the thought went through my head. 
unless you absolutely cannot, because you're so obligated or you're geographically, it's impossible, always accept an invitation. And that thought went through my head and said, Mary Lou, I'll be there. I'll meet you. So I get to Charlie's, I meet the two of them. And Peter Pope, who directed the um, downtown and the Richard Allen production of Torch Song, happened to be there because he had gone to see Agnes of God that night. And so he comes over to my table raving about Agnes of God, and he loved it, and this, that, and the other. And I said, well, you know how much I loved your play. I said, it's a shame that Harvey you know, was afraid to do it on Broadway. He said, well, I think if you were to call him now, you might get a different story. So, oh, really? So the next day I called Harvey, took him to Sardi's, and after, and I already talked to Marty Markinson, who owned the little theater was called then. I had it changed to the Helen Hayes. One, because I knew her and they had tore down her theater. And two, because the little theater wasn't exactly the right title for a theater when you want to say this is the first gay play on Broadway. So um, after we came out of Sardi's, I showed him the marquee and I said, now, wouldn't you like to see Harvey Firestein's Torch Up Tripoli right up there? He said, that would be the theater? I said, absolutely. So if I had not accepted that invitation, you know, from Mary Lou, uh, I, I certainly, you know, it, it may have eventually got its way into Broadway, I don't know, but certainly wouldn't have been through me. And how do you, just because you mentioned that briefly, how did you get a change to the Helen Hayes? How did that? Oh, well, I really, it really bothered me that we're going into what's called the Little Theater. Um, and it, it, I, it didn't really have a Broadway image either. So I had met Helen Hayes um, when I was, I, uh, we did, when we did the first national tour of Greece, one of our stops was the Fisher Theater in Detroit. So when it opened there, I went out to check the show. Uh, I would see it periodically, but I went out specifically for that opening uh, because they were doing a lot of publicity about it and they wanted me on a radio show. And so I said, fine. The radio station where the radio show was broadcast from was at the top of the Fisher Theater building, kind of a skyscraper. And on the show that day uh, was Helen Hayes. She was on a promotional tour for the, um, the uh, part she had in uh, Airport, Airplane, Airplane, the, the movie. She had a cameo. And um, so we're both on the show. And um, it was the day that the news had come out that one of Helen Hayes' contemporaries way back um, had, had died. And I'm blanking on her name right now, but I knew it. And um, uh, maybe, I'll, maybe it'll come to me. But anyway, she was a very famous actress from you know, the early 1900s and that whole period of Helen Hayes. And uh, so that came up on the show. And then I said, yes, and she, uh, her first show was in the Royale Theater, where Grease is now playing on Broadway. And I knew some other things about it. So Helen said, Hayes said to the MC of this radio show, she said, this is radio. She's talking to the audience. So you people out there can't see what I'm doing. But I'm leaning over and giving this young man, I really was a young man then, giving this young man a big kiss on the cheek because he is so familiar and knows all about one of my contemporaries from all the way back then. And uh, we stayed for, afterwards, she said, um, we were doing the take-in. So the take-in, of course, is when all the pieces of the set and the lighting equipment and everything's lying all over the orchestra floor, on top of seats, everywhere, you know, somehow, the stagehands miraculously know where every piece goes, and they end up, you look up and there's your set, the whole stage set. So she said, um, I, so I mentioned we're doing the take it. She, oh, she said, can I come down 
and uh, watch a little while. I said, of course. So we go downstairs. She's standing in the house. I said, don't you want to sit? No, I'm fine. She's standing in the hall and she's watching them. She says, this is what the theater is. Just watching all these pieces of whatever all over the place and these big lamps sitting there on top of seats. And then all of a sudden it's your show. You know, and it was like chills, you know, the way she was describing it. And so we stayed in touch. At one point she asked if I would uh, produce a little charity benefit for her charity, um, which I agreed to, of course. And we, we got all these stars to participate. And now, uh, but that was after, that was later. Because now we're opening Tortsong at the Little Theater. And I said to the owner, Marty Markinson, I said, you know, I, this is, does not convey the Broadway image. This is the first gay play, really, on Broadway. And it doesn't, and I'd like to ask Helen Hayes, because they tore down her theater, if we could rename this one after her. He said, you think she'd agree? I said, well, why wouldn't she? They just tore down her theater. You know, so I called her and she was thrilled, really. And so we had an entire little you know, ceremony. She came, she saw the play. We had a little uh, award and uh, uh, um, a dedication, you know, afterwards and so forth. Before she came though, a lot, several members of the cast said, Helen Hayes, is going to come and see this. <laughs> I said, look, she may look like a little Victorian lady, but she's no prude. <laughs> she's going to love it. And of course she did. And she greeted everybody, talked to everybody in the cast. And she was absolutely thrilled. And so it was called the Helen Hayes. I'm a little annoyed, upset actually, because the new owners, Marty Markinson and his team, sold it to this nonprofit organization. And they've decided to change it to the Hayes why they didn't want to use the name Helen Hayes, I don't know. But it's a real insult to her history. She was forever the first woman of theater. And um, I just find that to be, you know, and some people, I've heard from other people who have done shows there, and they say, it's funny, people ask us if it's named after the Hayes guy, that, you know, was the censorship for Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Harvey did cut the play down when he agreed to do it on Broadway to, um, well, first he, he did like a four hour cut. So it was four hours long instead of five and a half. Something was missing. I told him the seams were showing Harvey. He went back and he did another draft, three hours and 20 minutes. And to me, it was perfect because everything fit where it was. I mean, it, the progression, the arc. So I said, we're gonna go with this. A lot of people, including some investors, said, you can't go with a three and a half, three hour and 20 minute play. Who's gonna stay? Who's gonna sit through that? I said, well, you know what? I think it'll make, it's the first gay play on Broadway. Three hours and 20 minutes makes it an event. It makes it, it'll make it a more important event. I said, we'll be the little Nicholas Nickleby. You know, that was the show that ran three hours a night for two nights. I said, we'll be like the little Nicholas Nickleby. And uh, it worked. I mean, the audiences never, you know, went by so fast. And they just ate it up. And so Grease was, of course, one of the most popular 70 shows, and these were popular 80 shows. And so how do you think that the Broadway audience changed over the decades that you were working in theater? Well, in, in, in one way, the Broadway audience, I believe, has not changed. Because if you give them a really good show that works, they're going to come running. And they always have. How shows are done, you know, has changed over. And um, the we when I when I got into the business I, and I was working for George Abbott in the beginning there, there would be like maybe two or three sellout musicals every season. And 
Now you get one big sellout maybe every five years. It's the Brock's World by Hamilton, and then before that, Book of Mormon. Um, and, and of course, the Music Man revival. It's a revival, though. Oh. But that's the only show selling out, as far as I know, right now. Maybe some others now that the reopening has progressed and more people are coming. Um, but, but that is one of those kinds of shows, like that Mendler's Hello Dolly, as a revival was. And um, we used to have that two or three every season, but now we don't. And part of it is because um, those shows, musicals especially, were really a producer's medium. You know, they would be the force behind it. With Hello Dolly, David Merrick thought the uh, play, um, uh, and you would know the title that it was based on. The Matchmaker. Yeah, what? The Matchmaker. The Matchmaker, of course. I have these senior moments. Anyway, he thought that The Matchmaker might make a good musical, that he liked the theme of it and all of that. And so he started thinking about it, and then he brought in writers. Jerry Herman had done, um, uh, uh, what was the name of it? He had just done a musical, and I saw it. Oh, um, Milk and Honey? Milk and Honey. I need you around. <laughs> Milk and Honey. And I remember seeing it, and I was totally unimpressed. I was probably um, uh, mid-20s or something, uh, probably just back from the Peace Corps. Anyway, um, I wasn't very impressed with it. But, you know, you could see he did some hummable stuff, you know, and uh, some good lyrics. And so Merrick saw that too. And so he asked him to come up and he told him, if, would he do a couple of songs on spec? And Jerry Herman, of course, said yes. So he did a couple of songs and Merrick thought they were great. He thought they would really work for Hello Dolly. And so that started that form of creative team. Um, so when all this started happening, the regional stuff and the, the investors billing themselves as producers and being in charge. Liz McCann said, oops, it's happened. The inmates have taken over the asylum. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think each season we suffer a little bit from that. We still have hits once in a while, big ones, thank God, but not like we used to. And so you mentioned uh, David Merrick and some of the great producers in the 60s and, and on. And so I'm curious to know, did you ever have any sort of like competition with him or Alex Cullen or anyone like that over here? Oh, yeah, what, oh, yes. David Merrick. Um, when we moved from the Eden Theater with Greece to the um, Broadhurst, which was available, we were moving in June and right after the Tonys. And, um, uh, Bernie Jacobs, who was chairman of the uh, Schubert organization, president of the Schubert organization, he said, I can put you in the Broadhurst, but we've already given it to Neil Simon in November for a new play of his. So we'll have to find you another theater. And um, I said, okay. I said, he said, but if we can't agree on a theater of what I have available, and you get offered a theater from the Nederlanders or the Jamsons, I, I won't stand in the way. Bernie was that kind of a terrific you know, gentleman. You did, with Bernie and Jerry Schoenfeld, who was the chairman, uh, you didn't need anything on paper. I mean, you put it on paper in case something happened to them, but you didn't need it. Yeah. And um, a sh handshake was all you needed. So now it's coming time in September, and uh, we have to look forward to what are we going to do in November? And the show had become quite the hit. And um, we took a full page, in those days, every Labor Day, all the shows took full page ads. And we took a full page ad, the headline was, See Greece, just for the fun of it. 
and it was a full page ad. So here we were, Bernie had said, um, the only theater that we really have would be the court theater. Well, back then the court theater was like a jinx house. It was on the wrong side of Broadway. You didn't get walk-in trade. Um, uh, so it was considered a jinx house and they hadn't really had any hits. He said, now I would be able, I would promise you the Plymouth, which is under reconstruction. And whenever that's finished, we can move you there. I said, Bernie, you know what happens with reconstruction. <laughs> we can finish our run before it's ready. Uh, I said, no. Uh, I said, I want the Royale, because I saw in the paper that it's closing. He said, well, we don't own the Royale. Uh, I mean, not the Royale. Uh, that was the music box. That was another problem. Another situation. No, the Royale I wanted. And he said, but David Merrick wants the Royale for a play he's going to do this, this season. And he said, but we haven't promised. He said, I haven't given, I haven't said I would give it to him. I told him I was thinking about it, but I was making no promises. I said, well, I want to tell you that Jimmy Niederlander called me before I got here, knowing that I was coming to see you about this theater problem. And he said to me that he would be willing to offer me the palace if you didn't have a theater that I could go into. He said, you want to put Greece in that barn of a theater, the palace? I said, no, not at all. Oh, he also suggested the ambassador, another jinx house. Now, of course, it's and Chicago is a major hit, but in those days, and it was uptown considered them then, and um, uh, it, it hadn't had any hits. And also, we'd have to rebuild our scenery because it had no wing space on one side, practically none. So um, I didn't want to go into the ambassador, and I said, you know what? I'd rather go into the palace than go into the ambassador or go to the court. So. Um, uh, I had this agent, I brought the entire full page ad and I plowed it down on top of his um, oak desk that had been owned by uh, J uh, the original Schubert's. And um, so he looked at it, he looked at me, he left. It seemed like forever, but it wasn't. He came back and he slammed his hands so hard on this oak desk, I thought it was gonna crack. And he said, okay, you can have the Royale, but this ad better bring in some good advance and it surpassed anybody's thoughts you know, at that time. I found out what happened. He went out of the office, he went to a phone and he called the treasurer at the Broadhurst um, Theater. And he said, I'm in this predicament, I promised Ken that he'd go with another theater chain and he doesn't like the only theaters that I was able to offer right now and um, uh, what do I do? She said, well, what you do is you don't lose that show. She said, you're going to regret it if you lose that show. And of course, being right there in the box office pulse, he came back and he said, okay, you can have it. Well, Merrick went bananas, went bananas. And later when we're doing over here, um, we, were, we had the, the entire set up in the shop in the Bronx, Pete Feller, who made all the Broadway sets in those days. And we were ready to go to Philadelphia. And David Merrick's carpenter happens to be up there. And he sees this set with three treadmills in them, you know, all laid out, ready to go to Philadelphia. And he says, uh, he said, where did you get these treadmills? He said, well, I had two of them here, so I'm renting it to them, to Ken and Maxine for uh, over here. And uh, I built, you know, the third one for them. He said, those two treadmills that you had stored here were not yours. 
They belong to David Merrick from Subways Are For Sleeping. He said, I, th I thought that I had bought them. They were my no, you never did. You were just letting us store them here. So my general manager calls uh, David Merrick's general manager. And um, Merrick's manager says, well, how much is Pete renting them to you for? And he said, $250 a week. Back then it was like $2,500 or more. So he calls back and he says, Merrick will not sell them to Ken Weissman. Uh, he can buy them. They'd be $25,000 for the two of them. That's like saying $250,000. And when you're ready to go to, out of town, your budget has really been spent, you know. But you, so anyway, we had no choice. Then Jack Schlissel, David Merrick's manager, calls back, calls Eddie Davis, my manager, back. Merrick has decided that he doesn't trust Ken. He doesn't think that show that went into the Royale instead of his is doing any business, really. So he wants a guaranteed certified check which was really an insult, but we had to provide it. Now, open, over here opens at the Schubert Theater. He's got um, the musical version of, um, of um, it's called Sugar, and it was the musical version of Some Like It Hot. They're not doing well. So Jack Schlissel calls my manager, and he said, Merrick would like to know if on the inner lobby, you know, that's where after they bought their tickets, when they're coming, on the inner lobby, of over here, if we could put a sandwich board promoting sugar, and we'll do the same here at the Majestic for, uh, or the Imperial it might have been, we'll do the same here um, for um, over here, we'll put it. So Eddie tells me this. I said, you know what, call Jack Whistleback and tell him that I'd be happy. I'd be happy to let him do that. We'll put a sandwich board right there for $26,000. Jack Schlissel calls Eddie back. Merrick wants to know why 26000 Eddie Davis says, because Ken feels he's entitled to a profit. Now, I see the sign on the side of the, uh, between the Broadhurst and the um, uh, Majestic Theater. Uh, I see the sign is now available, that big sign there. And it, David Merrick's office looks right onto it. So I run over to Bernie Jacobs and I said, we want to rent that sign. We want that sign. Okay, okay. So we put up this huge, you know, grease right on there, the whole thing. Pat Birch was walking through Schubert Alley a few days after that, and she bumps into Merrick's uh, secretary, who's not only been with him forever, but she actually was a classmate of Pat Birch when they were in college. So she says to Pat, oh, my God, she's, Merrick is in a constant rage, screaming every time I look out the fucking window, I have to see that awful grease sign. So now we're having a major um, crisis. Lawrence Schubert Lawrence, the heir to the Schubert fortune in theaters, um, is considering, he's, he, first of all, he's, he's a really far gone alcoholic. Everybody talks about that. Uh, but nevertheless, he is going to make a deal you know, with builders and so forth to tear down the theaters on 44th and 45th Street. Bernie and Jerry turn out to be the real heroes here because they really step up to uh, the mat and um, you know, to battle this thing. And um, there's a league emergency meeting. David Merrick, who considers himself a bug above the Broadway League, um, didn't, you know, was not a member, but he came to this. So we have this whole meeting about what we're going to do. And, and actually, what Bernie and Jerry were going to do is mutiny and just try to get him out, which meant there'd be a lot of legal battles. So when the meeting's over, 
uh, I get on the elevator. The meeting uh, was held on the third floor in Sardi's in one of the rooms. I get on the elevator, and just as the doors are closing, David Merrick gets on behind me. And um, doors close, and I said, hello, Mr. Merrick. And he says, hello. Start to descend, and he said, uh, I got a call from the Wall Street Journal. They're doing an article on producing, and they wanted to interview me you know, as a, like a senior veteran producer. And they asked me, who's really the youngest producer, and, and would it be good to interview them or him? And I said, yes, you should interview Ken Wasteman. So you're going to get a call from the Wall Street Journal. And we were friends ever since. Wow. Yeah. And so then um, after uh, the Talk Show Trilogy, I think, was a show you produced that was not as successful, which was the Octet Bridge Club. Oh, yes. And so I'd be curious to know, what do you think made that not so successful? Um. Well, it, it was it was the first flop that I had really, and um, so that was a lot to deal with. The um, th some shows are blessed, you know, just at the right moment, the right thing will happen to save the show. Greece was blessed. We had several of those moments. Um, Agnes, and you can look at certain shows and you see they were blessed. Some shows are completely cursed, and Octet Bridge Club was one of them. Um, first of all, we, uh, we get to Baltimore for the tryout, and it's a terrible blizzard going on. So the audience is very late showing up, and we, we never get more than maybe 50% of the audience. But we start the show, and we're, we're going along, and about 15 minutes into the show, a man in the mezzanine has a heart attack and passes out, of course. So I have to come out on stage in the middle of the show and stop the show and tell the audience uh, that I didn't say heart attack. I just said, gentlemen, the mezzanine passed out and we'll have to hold the curtain until the ambulance gets here. They're arriving now and so forth and so on. Then we go back to the show, uh, which never really, after that kind of a thing, took, took off and especially at first performance for the public, paying public. Uh, so the reviews were not, not terrible, but not great. But we also realized we had miscast the lead and it just wasn't working. And um, rather than, for some reason, a new person who could have really stepped in and, and like we did, like I did with Agnes of God, um, but I hadn't done Agnes yet, um, didn't happen for us. And the understudy that we had hired was really good. She did a great job, more or less, but she didn't have that fill the stage star quality. But we unfortunately went with it. Uh, we get to New York. And we open in New York, and um, Rex Smith is there. Not Rick Smith, the reviewer from New York Magazine. And um, I'm blanking on his name too, but that's par for the course with me. Uh, anyway, tough guy. And um, when he gets up after the show, he turns to his companion in the theater, you know, who's with him, and he said, Boy, I can't wait till all the gay playwrights die of AIDS. Liz Smith was sitting in front of him. She said, read my column tomorrow. And she did a whole column cursing him and slamming what he said and all of that. The show ended up becoming a big controversy. But word of mouth is basically what makes or breaks a show. And we did not have word of mouth on that show. Um, 
you know, I was attracted to it. I saw it in Louisville and workshop. And, um, you know, it, it was funny and it made a point. And, and it had, we ended up with really, except for the lead one, we had really good actors in it, but it didn't make it, you know, so we ended up closing. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, it wasn't just your ordinary flop. Come in, you don't get good reviews, the audience isn't very responding. No, we had to become the biggest scandal of the season. And when do you decide to close a show, be it short running or long running? Is there like a line that you make first? Well, you close it when you realize the pilot light in the box office is not working. Or it's growing, but so slowly that you just can't finance the loans. I mean, the losses each week. Um, but, you know, you, you assess the thing. The first time you have that challenge is after opening night when everybody the next morning congregates at the ad agency to check all the reviews and see, you know, see what's going on. And then um, you have to, as a producer, you have to make the decision. Uh, are we going to now take quote ads and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, and, you know, uh, to keep this thing going. And um, sometimes it's a tough decision. With Greece, it was a very tough decision because we got very uh, mediocre notices the next uh, that night of the opening. Clive Barnes was so-so. We got a rave in the Daily News, but the Post really panned it. Women's Wear panned it. We got um, uh, a rave on NBC television, uh, but Stuart uh, Klein and Channel 5 killed it completely. So, um, and we've been losing money each preview week. Albeit we had, those losses had shrunk as we went along, but we were still losing money. So um, my attorney, whose job it is, you know, to protect my interests and, and uh, protect the show too, but but protected from you know going out of control. So he said, I think because of this situation, and you already owe money on losses, you should put up the notice so that if it doesn't improve, you can close Saturday night without um, increasing further debt. Now I, I was already in debt for about twenty some thousand, and at that point I didn't have the twenty one, the twenty thousand. So I figured, because there was some activity at the box office, um, even that next morning, I figured. Um, if I can't afford to lose the 20000 I might as well not afford to lose more. So I said, we're going to make a run for it. Yeah. So we took a full-page ad, quote ad, you know, in the Times. And also, I said to uh, Matthew Serino, who was the ad exec running the uh, agency at that time, I said, you know, we got a raid from Douglas Watt in the Daily News, but a terrible pan from Richard Watts in the Post. Their names almost sound alike. What if we took the... Douglas Watt review, and we relayed it out exactly like the way they present the Richard Watts reviews in the post, and then we take it as an ad on the theater page. He said, "Well, he said they would, you know." He said, "Wait a minute. If we did that, and we got it in like let's say five minutes before the deadline, they might not check it. They might go, you know, they, because it's so late, they'll just put it in, which is what happened." So. The next day, people were saying, you got a rave in the post. They didn't remember the other review at all. We also did something else. I said, if people call for house seats, there are none. They're all sold out. I told uh, my manager, Eddie Davis, general manager, because they handle the house seats. They get all the calls. And my office, I told them to say the same thing. Um, and so suddenly, after a few weeks of this, we're, we're, we're building, we're breaking even now, 
gross kept going up. I was right. The pilot light in the box office was very active. And um, now New York Magazine, who used to do a thing every week about hot tickets or not hot tickets, they started saying that Greece was a hot ticket because you couldn't even get a house seat to it. So um, all these little drops of water kept remind. Now, what, it, what does advertising do? What does Tony Awards do? What does um, uh, all of that? What it does is it reinforces the word of mouth. Yeah. If there's no word of mouth, you can win the awards. You can have articles about you. As Oscar Hammerstein uh, said, the father of the composer, said in 1900 when he owned theaters and was producing, he said, if they don't like your show, no matter how much money you spend on advertising, they will stay away in droves. You know, and that's true. But all, but if they, if the word of mouth is out there, then all these little drops of water keep in people's minds, and it, it keeps them remembering. Oh yeah, I do want to see that. That's what it does, and that's why you have to keep doing that throughout the whole run. They'll forget. Oh, I did want to see that, and it closed. I never went. You got to make sure they don't do that. Yeah. So. You know, like some shows will stop their advertising after they're hit, you know, or they won't really delve into uh, how, how much effort they put into replacing actors or whatever, because they're already hit. They already got the reviews. They're already, no, it won't last. It won't last unless you keep it up. And if you keep the show up too. Now, um, Danny Jacobson, who was um, not our original kid on Broadway, he, he was in the national tour and then we brought him to Broadway. And um, I, I happened to catch the show at one, one night, and I was very upset. And um, because they were, they were just calling it in, you know, it was. Uh, and so I put a notice up on the bulletin board backstage, and I said, I was at the show last night. Where were all of you? <laughs> so, and I called Tom Moore, the director, and I said, Tom, because he was in LA, I said, you got to fly in. You got to fly in and hold some emergency rehearsals because it's really, the performances are really floundering get lazy, you know, actors will get lazy. Our stage manager, the production stage manager, his job is to keep them goosed and keep them going, but even that sometimes will not be enough. You need the director, you need the producer. So, um, uh, you know, so Danny Jacobson who was playing, and Nicky happened to come up to my office about something else, but he stuck his head in and he said, we really have gotten lax. We really have been like, but I mean, we were sold out. I said yes at that performance. But what about the people left after that performance? Did they tell 10, 20 people they got to go see Greece? If you were that lazy, probably not. So where are we going to be in six months? He's, oh, I never thought about that. But that's part of the game. Yeah. Oh, so we talked about the Arctic Bridge Club being yes. a film, and you also worked on a very legendary, unsuccessful show, Carrie. And oh, I didn't work on that. No, by then, um, my, uh, general, my general manager had sort of retired. And um, Bob Buckley, who was a general manager, we teamed up. And we, there were a couple of shows we were talking about producing. We did produce two. And, um, but he got engaged to, um, we, had, we started Waitsman and Buckley as a firm for general management. And then we would produce anything, some things that we wanted. Um, but the Carrie, the people involved with Carrie, um, hired him to be the general manager. So his office next door to mine, quite a scene going on there during that show. Uh, that was a classic. And um, I remember the arguments 
I remember hearing all the noise. Uh, the drugs that were, they were screaming about drugs being used, who knows what. It was a, a weird experience. Matty Eisenberg, the famous producer and general manager, started out as um, general manager for St. Suber, who did all the Neil Simon plays in the beginning. Really sharp guy. And Bob Buckley came back the next morning from one of the previews, and he said, you're not going to believe. He said, last night, Manny Eisenberg came to see Carrie. I said, he did? He says, yes. And afterwards, when I walked outside, he was standing there, and he said, Bob, this is absolutely the best, worst show I've ever seen. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> and then another, I'm not sure if you would have worked on this one, but another, I believe, Weissman Buckley Associates was a show called I can't really pronounce it, Asina Mali, something like that. Asina Mali. No, that, that was Bob and I, we produced that. Oh. Yeah, that started at the Lincoln Center as part of a festival. And then we picked it up from there and we um, uh, produced it uh, sort of mid, the mid-level thing that we're having in those days. I don't think the theater is there anymore, but it was on um, I think West 45th or 6th, something like that, over, over between 9 and 10. Um, Good reviews, uh, but we never quite caught on with it, you know, but it had, it had a bit of a run. It never quite caught on. Now, I'll tell you a wonderful story, though, that happened during that. Um, because uh, um, Paul Newman's wife, uh, Joanne Woodward, she was on the board for the Lincoln Center and active in getting them to do that particular play as part of the festival. It was a South African play. And um, so, we were talking about doing some radio commercials for the show when it opened. And um, I sent a note to Joanne Woodward asking if she would uh, make a comment in the radio advertising we were doing. So it's early in the morning. I wake up. I hadn't had coffee or anything, but the phone is ringing. So I pick it up. And she says, um, Mr. Waisman? I said, yes. She said, this is Joanne Woodward. So I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, OK. <laughs> so she says, you sent me this lovely note. Uh, it is radio, right? It's not television that you're contemplating? I said, no, that particular commercial would just be radio. She said, okay, she said, I would love to do it. For some reason, I don't want to like appear in a TV commercial right now. I said, no, no, that would be perfect. So she said, oh, that's great. And then she goes, wait a minute. And then she gives one of these, Mwah! she said, Paul is leaving. And I thought that was so sweet. <laughs> yeah. But the show never really you know, caught on. And so what made you decide to step down from Broadway and from General Ventrum when you did on producing? Oh, because that was appropriate for the show. You're talking about Cinemali? Oh, no, no, no. I meant like in your own career. Oh, When oh. you decided to leave Broadway and stop. Oh, well, things were very, I was very disenchanted toward the end of the 80s going into the 90s. And um, uh, an opportunity came up to do a project in LA uh, for television and um, work uh, with Nell Nugent who was out there also. She had kind of moved from Broadway for that period of time anyway out to LA. It was doing some uh, movies of the week and she did some other things. And I thought, uh, I was so disenchanted with the industry with Broadway. Uh, most people at that particular point, although many came back, a lot of the people that I worked with and collaborated with were out in LA. So I figured, you know, this is a very interesting project to do. So um, uh, I, I moved out there. I mean, I didn't move out there. I still came back to New York and so forth and so on. But I moved out there. I got an apartment. 
And um, I remember the day that I actually got the apartment to work on those projects, I bumped into Estelle Getty, you know, had been the mother in Turrets on Trilogy. She was on uh, that, the, the TV show at the time. Uh, and um, I told her, I says, guess what, Estelle, I'm doing a project out here, and I just got an apartment too. She said, really? Well, let me give you some advice. I said, what's that? She said, take Fountain. Now, anybody that knows about LA knows that Sunset Boulevard is like a parking lot. You can spend hours trying to cross it, where the street right below it, Fountain, is always empty for some reason. You know, I, th I thought that was very funny. I later learned that it was Betty Davis that actually said it the first time. <laughs> but anyway, so I was out there and on and off for back and forth for about uh, four, well, over four years, close to five. Uh, and then I, I decided to um, uh, come back to New York. And uh, it was very interesting. People would visit my apartment sometimes and say, uh, who didn't necessarily know I was from New York. Or they did, but they, they would say, I can see why you're from New York. I said, why? You got books here and shadows. I mean, yes, yeah, you mean instead of scripts? I said, absolutely, yes. <laughs> Very different place, you know, LA. Um, everything is connected. I remember being at a dinner party out there. I'd gone back and forth for years, so it wasn't like I was new to LA. But to get an apartment to work on something there, that was new for me. I had a great experience in the end, actually. But um, I remember being at somebody's dinner party at the house, and the person across from me said they were um, they were dentists. And for some reason, with what was I said, this is refreshing. I thought to myself, somebody who was a, a dentist in a real life situation, turned out he was dentist to the stars. So. <laughs> It wasn't refreshing. <laughs> yeah. And then, so to bring us up to the present day, I'd love to ask about this wonderful book about Greece, which I got the chance to read some of, and it was wonderful. And so how did this idea... How, how, did, this, how did the book start? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, you know, um, uh, this year is our 50th anniversary of the Broadway opening. So that was quite a landmark, you know, and the entire... All the alumni, all the kids, the, I say kids, they're not kids anymore, but all the actors and act that had been in the show had stayed together. You know, we have periodic reunions, people are in touch with each other. From each particular cast, there's certain people that are still best of friends and so forth. And so um, uh, Tom Moore happened to mention, uh, wouldn't it be nice if honoring the 50th, we actually come out with a book that the, the alumni can, can sort of be in? And I well, that's a great idea. And then he mentioned it to Adrienne Barbeau, and she thought it was a great idea. And she had written a few books, so she knew a lot of the ins and the outs about doing something like that. And so we just um, formed a team, the three of us, and we decided to do this book. Mary Lou Henner came up with the title. She's the one that suggested, Grease, tell me more, tell me more. And um, then we started getting in touch with all the alumni, the famous people, the not so famous people, asking them if they would contribute backstage stories about their experience. And we got started getting these wonderful stories. Some things that happened that I never knew, other things that were just hysterical, and other poignant things. And uh, so we started editing this book, and then we started writing stories ourselves for the book and contributing to how the show started, how we rewrote it during previews practically, all these different things, how we fought the League of New York um, theaters and producers for the uh, Tony when they said we're not in the right geographic. We were in 1100 seat theater where we opened to the Eden. It's where Once Upon a Mattress opened with Carol Burnett. 
before it moved and where Man of La Mancha played before it moved. But they were telling us that the rules have changed and that now you have to be within 42nd Street to 40, to 50th, whatever it was. Otherwise, you can't qualify. And we decided, if that's the case, we got to get. We would have gotten publicity by getting some nominations. Now we get nothing. But think of the publicity we could get if we sue. So Betty Lee Hunt and I came up with this whole thing, uh, informing Alex Cohen, who was the producer of the Tonys, uh, and ABC, which was televising it that year that um, we were going to send this letter out to the entire entire uh, theater press group uh, saying that we were filing suit at 12 o'clock that day against the league, the Tony committee, uh, I mean the Tony sponsors, and um, ABC, that we were being unfairly treated. And um, I knew from the way Alex reacted when he got that note at 10 in the morning, he called me right away. He said, we don't air our dirty laundry in public. I said, I tried discussing this with you, but you wouldn't listen or do anything. So now it's going to be very public because the publicity we might have gotten from a Tony nomination or so, we're going to get from this law case. He said, well, will you give me not one, don't do it at 12, would you give me until 2 o'clock? I said, sure. I knew that, that we had won just when he said that. And it turned out that it was ABC that said, we don't want, we don't want this scandal. So um, he called back about 12.30, and he said, okay, you won. You're eligible. He said, now, because of the trouble you've made, I don't think you're going to get any nominations. Now, the nominations were not made by the voters. They're made by special, you know, people, executive members of unions, certain reviewers and, so, and things like that. But I, I told him he was probably right. I said, maybe we should have just done the lawsuit. <laughs> but it turned out we got seven nominations. And Greece, which among the world, among the whole United States, wasn't really identified. If they'd heard of it, they didn't really hear of it as a Broadway show, but they did seven times that night. It's all the marquee and so forth and so on. So um, it ended up working for us. Now, I knew we were not going to win any awards because none of the Tony voters were asking for Tony tickets to come down. We were still downtown at the Eden to come see it. So I, uh, very few, very few. So we sort of put together we can't win with this, nobody coming to see it. But we did have the nominations and we did have seven spots on national television that night, so it was great. Yeah. And then, so the final question I'd love to ask you is, with such a great career in the theater, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? Ah, uh, I would say work at the foot of a, of a producer that really is a, um, you know, a show, uh, whatever they call it, a lead producer, who has a track record and knows what they're doing and can make decisions. And if you're working for that person, you will, you will learn the business and you will learn, you know, just, just going to some people who say, oh, we'll put up some money and then using that as a ticket to say, I want to be a producer. It doesn't really work in the long run. You have to know what you're doing. And um, so my advice would be, yeah, you know, you can't really study producing necessarily in college. Although I have given, I've spoken to many college students in different places over time, but it's not a course really. Uh, you can run learning the business side, but remember the producer, if he's really functioning as a producer traditionally, then he's captain of the whole fleet. He has to supervise everything. The director is captain of the creative ship. The general manager is captain of the business ship. The press agent is captain of the 
press and marketing ship. But above that is the producer responsible for it all. You have to be part psychiatrist, part businessman, part advertising marketing guy, part creative to recognize, you know, what needs to be done or whether the casting is not going the way it should and all kinds of other things. What director to hire, for example, because you have to have, the producer has to have an abstract vision of what he thinks will make this show successful. And that vision then has to be translated into concrete by the people he chooses to direct, to choreograph, to write if he's commissioning an idea to be turned into a player musical. So he has to take all that into consideration um, when choosing people to make his vision concrete. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Yes, and okay. it, was, it was nice to meet you and I hope we can meet in person someday. Okay, great. Well, thank, thank you. you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by one of Broadway's most iconic stars, the legendary Donna McKechnie. Donna McKechnie won the Tony Award for starring as Cassie in the original production of A Chorus Line, and her numerous other Broadway credits include How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, The Education of Hyman Kaplan, Promises Promises, Company on the Town, The Visit, and State Fair. Her touring credits include Call Me Madam with Ethel Merman and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum with Jerry Lester. On screen, she appeared in The Little Prince with Bob Fosse, and her many credits around the world include the famous production of Follies at the Paper Mill Playhouse, plus starring roles in The Pajama Game at Arena Stage, The Drowsy Chaperone at Pittsburgh CLO, and The Wild Party in London. So make sure to come back next time for that conversation, and thanks for listening.